If you'd care to turn with me to uh, John 20, or it's on the screen, you can follow along. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up, was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned, and, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, please tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Thank you, Lori. Let's pray. Father, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> what? That's a good prayer. Um. <clears throat> He saw and believed. Um, how about that? Verse 8. The other disciple who had gotten to the tomb first, stooped down, looked inside, went inside. He saw and believed. Um, the purpose of this gospel, John's written account, sort of the eyewitness testimony of John and others that he recorded for us, the purpose of this book that we've been reading through now for almost a year is so that we might believe. Um, it's, it's stated explicitly. Um, we haven't gotten there yet, but in John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us the purpose of this book is that you too might believe. Um, and so here we are. This moment... This, the beginning part of chapter 20 is, in fact, like the, the pinnacle of the story. Um, everything after this point is really uh, epilogue. 
But this is it. This is the climax. This is the big unveil. This is the moment that we've been waiting for, that Jesus predicted for like three years, the entirety of his earthly ministry, Jesus had been talking about, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going, I'm going to be betrayed, arrested, crucified, but on the third day, I will rise again, I will overcome death. Um, to fulfill the scriptures, in fact. This wasn't his uh, sort of spiritual invention. This was God's plan from like the beginning of everything. And now here we are. Um, to believe. How do you feel about that? Do you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, according to the eyewitness testimony, that he was in fact crucified, that he died, was buried, put in a tomb, and then three days later, or on the third day, as it were, he came back from the dead. Do you believe that? I believe that. I actually believe that. Sometimes I wondered myself, I have these sort of weird kind of meta moments where I'm like, do I, do I believe? I do believe. I must believe. I mean, look, look at my life. How did I come to believe this? Wow, what a, what a wonderful, bizarre thing. I believe. I believe Jesus is who he claims to be and that he, in fact, died for me and came back to life. I believe. Um, believe if the purpose of John's gospel is that we might believe it begs the question believe what exactly believe what exactly believe that Jesus uh, is alive Uh, believe that God exists Um, believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him yes Yes, to all of those things. Um, but to what end exactly? What is it that, that we're meant to believe? Because John's doing something that, that makes one wonder, like what, what exactly are we meant to believe? Because if he simply, if he merely wanted us, the reader, or the first century sort of inquire who's hearing the story, if he wanted us to simply believe that Jesus is alive, he could have been much more straightforward about it. Um, He could have, in fact, Jesus could have just told his disciples, "Eh, maybe a few days before his crucifixion, meet me in the garden, the tomb. There's an empty one there. You'll find it around, let's say, 5 a.m., just before dawn, Sunday morning. Why? why? Why do you want us to meet me? Just, just do it. Just meet me there and you'll see. And they would have been there. And he would have come out of the tomb and he would be like, ha ha, I'm here. The Jewish officials or the Roman centurions who were responsible for actually murdering him, uh, they maybe would have been there as well. Word would have gotten out and he would have been like, in your face, I'm alive, told you so. Now, believe. Why? why? Why wouldn't he have just done that? I believe, I believe, there's something else going on here. Um, because in fact, Jesus obviously didn't do that, nor did John tell the story in that manner. Because John, the gospel writer, he, he could have just simply laid out the facts. 
he could have just simply said, yeah, he, like he said, we, we didn't quite get it initially, but like he said, he, he is alive. The tomb was empty, and here's the facts, here's the data, lay it out, and we have like, like ample eyewitness testimony, accounts. And we've got the names, we can list them, you can cross-reference them and check, check it all out for yourself. But here's the facts, laid it out. He's alive now, believe. But he didn't do that either. In fact, the way Jesus reveals himself and the way John records the event, something else going on, something else that God is wanting us to believe, specifically believe. So instead of any of that, we get a frame-by-frame retelling of the moment, the morning. In fact, we're taken along on this journey to the tomb with three disciples, Peter, Mary, and then uh, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And there's all sorts of like, I don't know, debate and controversy around like, well, who was that? Is that too hard to figure out? Like you can read some commentaries on it. For sure, it was either James or John. It was one of the sons of Zebedee. And if you just do a little creative process of elimination, I think it's it's pretty safe to say that it was, in fact, John. It's interesting that John doesn't just simply disclose the fact, but he refers to himself a few times, five or six times in this, this story, that he is the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So here we are, early, early Sunday morning with Peter, Mary, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. All three of them stoop down and look into this empty tomb. They see the same thing, oh, but they see something very, very different. They all have this very unique, these personal experiences of what they quote-unquote saw. So, shall we? Peter, Mary, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. What do they see? Peter's pretty straightforward. Peter gets there. Um, There was a bit of a foot race. I love all the details. One can't help but speculate a little bit. Like, what was up with that? A foot race? And he felt it very important to note that the one guy beat the other guy. Which is kind of funny, but it also, a bit of a side point, I think points out the fact that actually the, the one telling, re- recounting this, these, all of these moments is wanting to make sure that he's, he's not just giving us the bottom line. He's, he's giving us the details because he wants to communicate, emphasize the fact that this is eyewitness testimony. Okay, this, these are the details. And the fact that ultimately Mary a first century Jewish female is the one who goes back and reports this moment, says something in itself. Like John is going out of his way to include all of the details. This is, this is his attempt to actually re- record, accurately record something um, historic. Anyway, Peter. Peter gets there. 
second to get there, or at least he gets there after um, the other disciple, and he looks inside. Sure enough, he sees nothing. Jesus isn't there. But that's not true. He, he sees the, the grave clothes, the linen burial strips, and we're told that he sees the, the part of the burial clothes that would have been used to wrap Jesus' head, sort of folded up and set aside separately, which I believe is probably to indicate to the reader that this was for sure not the work of grave robbers. They would have taken the burial linen strips for sure. Those would have been worth something, along with all of the spices and the, uh, the things that he would have been buried with. Okay, so these, this is not the work of grave robbers. But we're told that Peter sees the empty tomb, and he saw an empty tomb. That's what he saw. Did he believe? I don't know. I reckon only Peter and God himself knew in that moment. What was he thinking? Oh, we don't really know what Peter was thinking in that moment. We don't know whether he believed or disbelieved. One of the other gospel writers tells us that, that Peter um, and the, the other disciple, they left, they went home marveling, sort of pondering, wondering, what on earth is going on? We know that Peter's story is long from over. Um, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but in the epilogue, we're told quite a bit about what happens next after Peter discovers this empty tomb. Um, it would seem whatever he believed was going on or had happened to lead up to this moment, um, he wasn't ready to actually act on the data, the fact that the tomb was empty. In fact, we're told that only in a matter of days, Peter would go back to his old life. He said he went back to uh, fishing. So I don't know if he believed or not. If he did, he apparently wasn't ready to actually act on it. You ever, you ever um, wonder to yourself, like, what, what, what is the depth of my belief? It can be kind of a scary question to ask yourself. Do I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? God who came down in flesh, lived with humans, died for my sins, was buried and then came back to life. And not only that, is like utterly for me, loves me, was his motive for, for doing all of that. And has promised to never leave me, has promised to, to give me everything that I need for life, to follow him, to trust him, to obey him. Do I really believe it? Do I really believe it? Sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder because, you know, I'll have these moments where I reflect on my, my life a little bit. And I'm like, I don't know if I, if I do, like in my heart of hearts, do I believe it? Because sometimes I act other ways or I run to other things or I seek fulfillment and other stuff. And then I wonder, like, do, I, do I believe? Huh. I want to believe. It would help me. Help me. 
tomb. Peter saw an empty tomb. And all he saw was an empty tomb. He couldn't see anything else. Now here's where I want to I wanna submit this to you. Peter didn't see anything other than an empty tomb because he couldn't see past that moment in the courtyard. You remember that? The eve of Jesus' crucifixion. Just a couple days before. Go back three sermons. Peter denied Christ. The night that Jesus was arrested and ultimately crucified, there's Peter in the courtyard denying even knowing his Savior, his friend, denying that he even knows him three times. And after the third time, we're told that Peter just broke down, weeping bitterly, riddled with shame. Peter was still in that courtyard. I believe, believe, Peter couldn't see anything more than an empty tomb. Because Peter couldn't see beyond his shame. And shame will always blind the heart. Think about that. What about Mary? Mary, it's said, and in fact, the same wording is used. Mary stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw something altogether different. She looked in, and we're not even told anything about the linen burial strips, but she sees two angels sitting where Jesus should have been lying. The body, the corpse of Jesus should have been lying. She saw angels. And they spoke to her. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? What did she say? They've taken my Lord away from me. She's, she's heartbroken. Then Jesus himself this is one of these like slightly mysterious things, like trying to imagine like what is happening. Jesus himself appears. It's probably still slightly dark out. Maybe she doesn't even look up, or maybe somehow she's like spiritually like unable to see what's going on. I don't really know. John doesn't really tell us, but Jesus himself appears and asks the same question that the angels posed: Woman, why are you weeping? They've taken my Lord away. And she doesn't realize that it's actually Jesus himself talking to her. She thinks it's, apparently she thinks it's uh, the gardener. She says, tell me where you've taken him. Tell me where you've laid the body. I'll go get him. I'll, I'll take care of it. And she's overwhelmed with um, pain. Pain. She's utterly blinded. By pain, disappointment, the man, perhaps the only man that she'd ever loved, who didn't want anything from her, was gone, taken from her. She was alone again, and she couldn't see past her pain. You guys beginning to see what's perhaps going on in this moment. 
What is John really wanting to like help us understand beyond just the fact that like the tomb's empty? Everyone can see that. Peter sees it. Mary sees it. The other disciple, he'll look into the tomb and he'll see that the tomb is empty. But what is it that, that Jesus is really wanting us to believe in that moment? What about the other disciple whom Jesus loved? Verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. I did some research as a preacher does um, this week. I started thinking about like the, the psychology of believing. Any, anyone like an actual psychologist in here? Okay, cool. So I can say whatever I want. <clears throat> okay. So I'm not a psychologist and I, I've, I've read maybe a couple books. So that's, that's where I'm coming from. I was on uh, psychologytoday.com this week. I'm like, let me just do like a very basic, basic. I mean, that seems like trustworthy research, right? So I read a couple articles. Interesting, nothing like, oh, that's what it is. Now I'm an expert. Nothing like that. Um, but just like, yeah, what, what, what might one find if they just Googled, like, what do psychologists, psychologytoday.com, what do they say about like the psychology of believing? Um, and it's probably what most of us, I think, have kind of might, might expect intuitively. Like, what is the nature of belief? Um, apparently, there's, a, there's like an evolutionary need to believe. It's the way our brains work. Like, we, we fill in gaps and we connect dots. It's, it's actually a way to, like, um, efficiently utilize, like, brain energy. Like, we can't actually logically put every little piece in place, so our brain is constantly, like, filling in the gaps, connecting, making connections. And it's, it's a way to actually, like, efficiently come to conclusions. If we had to think about everything before we ever made a decision or came to a conclusion about anything, we would just, our brain would melt. And so we, that's how we, we process the information that we're given. So we're constantly like believing things that aren't necessarily like right in front of us. And that's, that's what we do. Um, the conclusion of this particular article said something like, um, so it was sort of contrasting uh, that, like the psychology of believing or faith, with thinking scientifically. Actually saying, okay, instead of just making assumptions or quote unquote believing things without actually seeing them, or uh, applying sort of the scientific method as it were, um, what, if, what, if, what if we did apply scientific thinking? What might that look like? It was, yeah, that's good. I'm, science is good. So the, the last statement in the article was, faith is based on belief without evidence, whereas science is based on evidence without belief. Is that true? Faith is based on belief without evidence, whereas science is based on evidence without belief or faith. I guess it sort of, um, we might need to define some of the terms. Like, what do we even mean by faith? 
it is interesting that um, the idea of walking with Jesus. If we were to take the empty tomb as like, say, the starting point for like a follower of Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's the, the, the 12 disciples aside. Let's say as a, a first century person or a 21st century person encountering the empty tomb. Someone's trying to convince me that, in fact, the tomb is empty. And so let's say that's where we start, right there. Let's say that's where the church starts, that historical sort of focal point, the empty tomb. Then the follower of Jesus actually begins from a point of evidence. The tomb's empty. Believe it or not, that's, that's what's being proposed. An empty tomb. Not an idea, not a philosophy, not a new rule of ethics, but an empty tomb. Something has happened. An historic event, as it were. And that's, that's the starting point. Evidence, as it were. Now, for us, of course, it's, it's not like we were ever there. So the evidence that we might be considering would be historic evidence. And we'd have to process that the way we would do with any sort of quote-unquote evidence that points to an event in history. You either have evidence or you don't. But walking with Jesus arguably begins with evidence, i.e. an empty tomb, and moves towards belief. True, robust belief or a confident trust in Jesus. So I, I, this is one of the things that I actually like about the biblical narrative like Christianity in general, the starting point is actually kind of scientific, if I can put it that way. I know I'm, I'm using these terms quite loosely. But it's, it's starting from a place of evidence, and then it's wanting to move us towards belief or confident trust in Jesus. Are you with me? This is fair, right? It's like in any relationship we begin building trust or faith in another person by first looking for evidence, concrete experiences of trustworthiness. As the evidence increases, so does my faith in that person grow. This forms the foundation for what we call a healthy relationship. Trust is the basis for my ability to freely give and receive love. I know I've just said a lot there. It's like in any relationship. It's like in my relationship with my lovely wife. Where did we start? Where did we start? Oh, okay. So, so chemistry aside, chemistry aside. Where did, where did, where did like our real relationship start? Well, I reckon you didn't trust me. I didn't trust you. We didn't even know each other. Why should I? Why should I open myself up to another human being that could crush me, that could betray me, that could trick me, that could lie to me, that could let me down? Why would I do that? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And so we began by looking for evidence of trustworthiness. Something more empirical, 
Like, is she going to show up the way she said she was going to show up? Is she going to lie? Or is she going to actually be true to her word? And so that's where we start relationships. It's a scary thing to wade into vulnerability. Uh, uh, this re- giving and receiving love. Can I trust her? I don't know. Let's look for evidence of trustworthiness. And we sort of did that dance for like five, ten years. We're still doing it to a degree. But eventually along the way, in a relationship, if it's maturing, if it's becoming healthy, then we start to move from just looking uh, for evidential trustworthiness to now, I do trust this person. And I don't have to sort of analyze every single situation. I don't have to kind of wonder every time my lovely wife makes a promise. Well, is she really going to keep the promise? I don't know. Let's evaluate this. Is there evidence? For it? No, there is. There is. In fact, I can think back to 15 years ago when we began to lay a foundation of trust. And so now I've moved from a mere empty tomb, evidential belief, to relational maturity like real trust i trust this person walking with jesus begins with evidence-based trust i believe the data the tomb is empty just as he promised and moves us toward love i will entrust my most intimate and vulnerable desires to this person because they have convinced me of their trustworthiness You are who you say you are. This, I believe, is what's happening at the tomb. The other disciple believed. He saw the same thing. He stooped in, he saw the empty tomb, but he saw and believed. The other disciple believed not because he was naive or more simple-minded or didn't believe in science, but because he was loved, because he knew that he was loved, and because in the world of biblical faith or relational trust, to believe is to be loved. The disciple who was loved. When he saw the empty tomb, he saw something different. There was something about the relationship that the other disciple, the beloved disciple, had with Jesus that empowered him, if I can put it that way, to believe. Because to believe is to be loved. This should hopefully really mess with like some of your categories for how you understand faith and relationship and love. This is what Jesus was doing as he engaged with Peter, Mary, and the other disciple. He wasn't just there to convince them that he was alive. The tomb was empty. In fact, in just a day or so, or literally that night, we're told, Jesus would appear in person, up close, in the flesh with his other disciples. Peter would have been there. And yet Peter still went back to fishing. 
He was stuck. He could see Jesus. Mary was standing or sitting or weeping, sobbing right in front of Jesus. But she still couldn't see him. Peter still couldn't believe. Why? Because he couldn't see past his shame. His heart was blind. He was riddled in his own regret. Mary, Jesus standing right in front of her, couldn't see him. Why? Because she couldn't see through her tears, her pain, that sense, that, that betrayal. The one who I thought loved me, who would never leave me, is gone. They've taken him from me. She couldn't see. She couldn't believe. So something else was going on. Something else needed to be addressed in her heart. It was when Jesus addressed her by name, Mary. Mary. That's intimate. Mary, I'm here. I know you're hurting. I'm here. I'm close. Peter, oh my goodness, I relate with Peter. I failed. Betrayed my best friend, my savior. Even though the tomb's empty, I can't believe that Jesus would ever take me back. So it's not just the empty tomb that John is wanting to highlight. It's not just that Jesus is alive that John is wanting us to believe. Each one of us in our own unique ways is to encounter Jesus in a way that he helps us to believe not only that he exists, not only that he's alive, but that he loves us. No matter what you've done, no matter how sh much shame you carry, no matter how much pain you experience on a daily basis, Jesus wants to meet you and I right where we're at and convince us that you are loved. That's what this story is about. This is, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 13. Go back and read about love and see how Paul connects love with faith. Go read 1 John chapter 4 and see how John himself revisits this idea of believing and being loved and how true faith is being experienced when love is being perfected in a heart. To believe is to be loved. The other disciple believed because he was the beloved. Walking with Jesus begins by looking into an empty tomb and move towards hearts filled with God's overflowing love. The question we all need to ask ourselves is not do you believe that Jesus is merely alive? Although that's a good question. And perhaps we need to start there. But then eventually Jesus himself moves us to a better question. Do you believe that you are loved? Do you believe that you are loved? Or do you believe that your shame 
has separated you from God's love in Christ? Do you believe that you're deep down, maybe you'd never say the words out loud because you're a proper Christian, but perhaps you believe deep, deep down that you are unlovable. You're gross. You've sinned too bad too many times and there's no way God could love you. I don't care how many times you tell me those words and you believe that you're unloved. Perhaps the pain, the pain is just too much. It's too overwhelming. The one person in your life who was supposed to love you crapped on you, abandoned you, abused you, convinced you that you're not worth loving. And on and on and on. I don't want to be too melodramatic, but this is like the real stuff of life. And this is why this story is so powerful and can change your life. This is why I want us as a church to realize that what John wants us to believe isn't just some historic data. Oh, the, the tomb's empty. You know, I've been to the, the empty tomb in Jerusalem. Of course, it definitely was not the actual empty tomb. It's a tourist spot. But I've been to the empty tomb. It's empty. Did it change my life? Not really. It was cool. You know what changed my life? Is when I looked down, I saw that empty tomb, and it's simply, instead of just simply acknowledging that the tomb is empty, I acknowledged that my heart was empty, and I needed God to fill me with his love and convince me that I am loved, that I, I'm worth sacrificing everything for, that he loves me that much, and he loves you that much, and no matter how your shame convinces you otherwise, or how much pain, how many tears you shed, you are loved. You are loved, you are loved, you are loved. Believe it. And God will go to the ends of the earth to convince you that you are loved. You are loved. Believe it. Believe it. Do you believe it? What if I say it louder? Will you believe it? (laughs) So the question Isn't do you believe Jesus is alive, but rather do you know that he loves you? Are you being perfected in love? Or is your shame causing you to run and hide? Is pain and disappointment from your past crippling you, making it virtually impossible for you to look up? Jesus wants to meet you right where you're at. Can I invite the worship team to come up, please? Can we stand together, please? Sorry for the abrupt transition, but we're going to land this. I've made my point. I'm told that um, every good sermon has to end with some sort of a practical thing, something to to say or do or to take away and apply. Um, I mean, what do you do with this? What do you do with the revelation that you're loved. Well, I don't know, where are you at? What's going on in your life? I would say look for the shame, look for the pain. And then ask yourself the question, Jesus, what do you wanna do in those places? 
where my own shame, my own sin, my own sense of failure, whether it's because of something awful I did or maybe something that someone did to me that just left me feeling gross, dirty, unlovable. Or maybe it's pain from betrayal. Someone let me down. And oh my goodness, I've, I've spent decades trying to convince myself that it's not a big deal. I have forgiven them. I've moved on. And yet you still hurt. You still feel that sting. Wherever you find shame or pain, ask Jesus, Lord Jesus, what do you want to do in those places? Can you fill me afresh with your love? Can you please convince me that you love me despite my shame or the pain or anything else going on in my heart? Lord Jesus, what do you want to say to me? And then watch him go to work. Watch him meet you, right? Listen to him say your name. Andrew, here. Daniel, Alex, I love you. You are lovable. Josh, I'm here. This is Jesus. Like if I imagine Jesus speaking. <laughs> Isaac, you are so loved. Greg, Greg, I see you. You can't see me with all those tears in your eyes, but I see you. I know what's going on. Not only am I alive, but I'm closer than you could possibly fathom. And I love you. Isn't this just like, this is the good news. Isn't this the best message ever? Father, help us. Help us. Speak to us. Touch us. Heal us. Help us. Would you fill us afresh with your love? 